0: I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO, Tom Dixon. Tom started a business called Harvest House Food and Grains that specialized in creating safer packaging for wheat. One day, he spilled some grain and found when he sucked it up with his vacuum, it acted as a wheat grinder. That was the beginning of the magic mill, which would later lead him to make blenders and starting Blendtec, where he is still CEO today. Tom Dixon, welcome into the corner office.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Let's kind of start with your early years. You know, what were they like uh, growing up in the B area? And what were you like as a kid?
1: Yeah, well, it was great. I mean, I grew up in the 50s. And the early 50s. And actually, we moved from, I was born in San Francisco, moved to Menlo Park, the country, uh, in 1951. And uh, the, it was wonderful, perfect weather. Hard to imagine
0: that Menlo Park was in the country then, but <laughs> I guess that's what it was, right? Yeah, sure. But I
1: had, a, I had a sheepdog that my dad, a friend of my dad that worked at Hewlett Packard, won at a poker game in Reno. And so, grew up uh, herding my my ducks, and we had 105 chickens, and we grew (laughs) uh, fruits and vegetables. So it was great growing up. A lot of
0: farmland out there then, or what was the uh, what was the area like? Uh, Pretty wild.
1: (laughs) Well, you know we we bought um, we bought this little house, and behind the house was some landlocked property, and so my dad bought that for three hundred dollars. There's, oh now, n- there's now a 4 million, there's two $4 million houses on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, he bought that. And then we he got the neighbor to tear his garage down. And so we had easement to that the acreage in the back. So that's where our little farm was. And that's where my racetrack was around two big oak trees that were hundreds of years old. So that's where I got started on uh, racing my, my car around the, when I was 12 years old, I bought <laughs> my first car for, for, um, Twenty-five dollars in nineteen thirty-two Chevrolet, and so that was my first car. And in that same year, I bought a for thirteen dollars. Bought a forty Osmobile. So those are my (laughs) cars that I raced around the dirt track in the backyard in Menlo Park.
0: Wow, hard to imagine. And what about um, entrepreneurial things? Any things you were involved with, uh, either leadership roles or you know, uh, doing business or starting business when you were a kid?
1: Yes, Um, I really I from when I was very young, I was, um, I was, uh, buying uh, or building go-karts and motorcycles and so on. Um, I held a record in, uh, uh, in Fremont, California, all of Northern California, drag racing motorcycles when I was 15 and a half, 15 and a half of the learners permit. Oh. So I bought and sold, uh, cars and motorcycles and go-karts and, but really, um, I started, I was, uh, I I was not a real good student, and I know, and uh, at all. And so I ended up. Uh, I went to Woodside High School, and there I took a machine shop class. And I was the only. I already had a lathe when I was eight years old. <laughs> I had a lathe in my garage. My dad uh, was one of the early employees of Hewlett Packard, and so he worked for Dave and Bill in 1951. Wow! And so he was a tool and die maker.
0: Was your dad an engineer as well? Is that kind of his background?
1: No, he was more of a, he was an inventor, but more of a, you know, machinist tool and die maker and had no interest in management uh, leadership. He was, um, constantly approached by Dave and Bill and, you know, you, you need to be a, to run the shop and do this. My dad had no interest in, in leadership only in being one of the guys and inventing and coming up with new processes and, and, uh, uh, and things to keep you know to get Hewlett Packard up and up and running in the first building on the Page Mill Road in Palo Alto. So wow. that was the beginning. So that's been
0: very exciting. Yeah. But, so so you mentioned uh, studies weren't your favorite um, modus operandi during your school years, uh, other than racing your go karts and cars. What are they the kind of things you were doing outside of class?
1: Yeah. Well, I and I had a hard time because I'm both uh, I'm both ADHD. D and also dyslexic, which they couldn't define back then. So I I didn't really have a chance at scholastic success. I couldn't even (laughs) read. I was a horrible student, but yeah, what I did all day is just think about and design and, and all through grade school. And you know, what am I going to do when I get home? And so I would lay out uh, go-kart designs on the, on the, on the concrete in the garage and bend up tubing, fill tubing full of uh, sand and plug it up and bend it and weld it together and, and build various you know, go-karts and motorcycles and so on, scooters. And so that's how I really got started. So, But really, I, I was the only one in high school that could run certain machine tools in my regular high school at Woodside. And then because of my lack of, and all the classes I took in high school were remedial remedial world backgrounds, remedial right. history, remedial English. And so I really had a struggle. And so for that reason they put me off in a different school for half a day. And that was a real blessing because I, I went to Sequoia High School in Redwood City. Right. And that was kind of a precursor for Stanford. It had a it had a bell tower. I mean it was a lot like a miniature Stanford, just between Stanford and and San Francisco. So that was wonderful. To this day, I mean there's no machine shop uh, for high school kids in the world, yeah. like like yeah. this shop. And so I was able to get some of these, and I was there three hours a day. So I'd ri- ride my fast motorcycle, my 650 <laughs> Triumph, you know, to school every morning really early and then spend uh, three hours there. And what I did is I organized a bunch of young guys that wanted to make, uh, half a dozen guys that wanted to make some money, and they really stood out in the class, So we'd get together and we'd do the whole year's worth of projects in about two weeks. Nice. And then, and so I did this for several years. And so then um, what I do, what I was doing with these guys is we're building motorcycle parts. So motor mounts and rocker cover covers and pegs and all sorts of things for racing motorcycles. And then I sold those to a local motorcycle shop, Motorcyclery and others. And so that was sort of and then i would share the wealth with the guys that were helping me but we just felt like we we're doing some worthwhile things instead of just making screwdrivers and hammers <laughs> and at the same time i was built we were buying castings and uh, making drill presses and, and other thing along things along that line and also we had lays from naval ships where we could turn 15 inch mag wheels uh, magnesium wheels on lathes. So these are huge pieces of equipment, right. as well as you could put four engine blocks on a planer and plane and plane engine blocks. So there's no shop in the world for kids any age. What yet. a blessing! So that turned, yeah, what a blessing. And of course. That.
0: I, I want to go back to something you mentioned about being uh, ADHD and dyslexia. You know, it's uh, very common that several entrepreneurs have had that uh, as a disability and uh, have gone on to do great things. Paul, Paul Orfalo is a good friend in Santa Barbara, the, for, the former founder of Kinko's and, of course, now uh, sold it on to uh, to FedEx, uh, suffered from both. And, you know, you meet him and you know it. (laughs) He's definitely got that type of personality. How did you overcome that? You know, it must have been difficult. Obviously, having the Sequoia School sounded like it was a very... um, uh, helpful thing, right? Because you could focus on your voc- vocation. But you know, as you said, you were well ahead of the diagnosis. Uh, uh, was that discouraging to you? Did it did it give you motivations in order to succeed? Tell me a little bit about your
1: thinking as as you struggled. Obviously, as y- you must have uh, with with both those disorders growing. Yeah, up. Yeah, it was a real. Uh, yeah, nobody understood it back then, and I spent a lot of a lot right. of time uh, in the corner of the of the classroom. <laughs> so. But it's it turns out to be a real blessing when you understand it. And as I travel the world and find other people, a good friend is David Nealman, the founder of JetBlue, and uh, we we've yes. been involved in his More Good Foundation for the last eleven years. But so different people like that. So it turns out I see things like nobody in the world sees. I mean, even yeah. you know, with our forty engineers, you know, I'll come up with some ideas I did nine weeks ago at four o'clock in the morning. And I, and I sketch it up and I come in and I try to explain it sometimes to the engineers and they don't quite get it. You know, I have to either print it up or, you know, really draw it up and, and after. Go back to the lathe it and make it. And I, And I'm still we're actually using when I made that mill almost 40 years ago and put 40 companies out of business that were making home grain mills. And the mill that weighed one-eighth as much took up one-eighth of space, put out flour twice as fine, twice as fast, and put 40 companies out of business that made stone mills. And now I've done 50 million in sales off from that mill. But that was something awesome. that, you know, I'm just everything totally outside the box. But getting back to the, the the ADHD and dyslexia, I mean, it's it turns out, I mean, it was tough going through to high school, yeah. reading only two books, T-Model Tommy and bulldozer; those are the only books because I was interested, <laughs> right, right? And so then I go off to college, and and it was really a struggle because I go to my counselor, D. Kent, and she said, "What are you going to do um, when you leave when you leave uh, uh, high school when you graduate?" And and I yeah. had a I had a four point two, so I had A pluses in the other high school, and I had and all these in, in Sequoia and, and Sequoia and, and all these yeah, bonehead yeah. classes. At at Woodside, you know, I had, I had an A because I never missed a day of school in in four years, and so and it was all graded on uh, on attendance, nothing to do with what you're you know how you could diagram a sentence or anything like that or history or anything uh, like that. So going off so that so when when uh, D. Kent said, well, what are you going to do? And she knew that uh, I had been accepted in a Tulane. In fact, it's the first. Uh, apprenticeship program at BYU uh, or at uh, Hewlett Packard that dealt with uh, tool and dime maker. Everything else was machinist. And so, and they took everybody, I mean, they would take about anybody out of our, our, our pre-apprenticeship machine shop classes. Mm. So I said, no, I'm not going to go to Hewlett Packard. She said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Brigham Young University. And her comment was, They won't let you in Brigham Young University. And I said, Well, Ken Woolley said they would. Now, he was the valedictorian (laughs) of the class, and he was going to be my roommate. And he's also, by the way, and he'd be a good guy for you to interview. He was the, um, uh, he ended up going on to graduating in physics from BYU in three years, going to Stanford and graduating with an MBA and a PhD concurrent without either of his advisors knowing it and when he when he got those two uh, honors he was protested both by faculty and by students when he went through so fast and at the same time he taught two days a week at Cal State Hayward so that's who I was that was my room wow yeah. So, so, and by the Debbie, way, oh, excuse me, by the way, he's the founder of Extra Space Mini Stories, the second largest. Oh, good. And so that was in 1976, Extra Space. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, an introduction to Tom would be wonderful, but yeah. back to uh, your choice of BYU, was it
1: uh, Tom's influence then that led you to going there? Well, it was, yeah, Ken's influence in, uh, yeah. led me to go to BYU. And and of course. Um, and, and, so, and what happened, I mean, there's only two, I really wanted to be an engineer, a manufacturing engineer, and there are only two schools on the planet that taught such a thing. And one was MIT and no chance of getting in an MIT and the other <laughs> was BYU. And so, so what the, going back to uh, D. Kent, the counselor. So what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go to Brigham Young University. They won't let you in Brigham Young University. And I said, uh. Well, Ken Woolley said they would, and she and she said, "Well, what are you going to study?" I said, "I'm going to study engineering." She said, "You can't be an engineer; you failed math." She was my Uh. math teacher as a sophomore, and I said, "I didn't fail; I got a D (laughs) minus."
0: That's right. (laughs) She
1: didn't realize that two days a week at at Sequoia that I was studying trigonometry, and I love trig, and so I and my dad would help me with that, and. So, anyhow, so I uh, she thought I was going to go to CSM, which is right. College of San Mateo, which uh, yeah. we called it College of Small Minds. And I, <laughs> I thought I I'd even be lucky to get in there, but I don't know. Somehow I got in BYU, and then I really struggled, um, you know, with all the undergraduate uh, classes. Well, you yeah, had
0: to take all the general education, right? Oh, it so, was
1: horrible. Yeah, all the stuff that I that I hated in high school. So all after right. three semesters, I had a 1.7 GPA. So not a good thing. And I was Ouch. I was 50 <laughs> on the lottery list to get uh, drafted to go to Vietnam. So I was not yeah. quite ready for that. And so what do I do? And my friends are going to be missionaries for the Mormon church, for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. So they had Ken had taken off and Dick Galbraith, another guy who got his PhD from Northwestern later was my roommate the second year. And so I thought, Oh boy, I got it. So I decided I got religion real fast and I became a missionary for two years. So I,
0: did you grow up in the church? No. Uh, did you grow up in the March? You did
1: not. Okay. No, I, was- I, my dad was a, a Methodist. My mom, um, she had been uh, associated. She was a member of the, of the LDS church, but I had no uh-huh. interest because my mom was more of a dictator. And when, when she was at church, um, as I snuck my motorcycle out at 15 and a half and <laughs> pushed it up the street and fired it uh, up and rode it across the Dumbarton Bridge, the Fremont drag strip. And uh, I got there and they said, are you 18? And I said, no, but just call my dad. He'll give permission for me to race they called and my mother answered the phone getting ready for oh, church. Oh, no. He's what? He's across the bay at Fremont and he wants to drag race his motorcycle. So anyhow, un- uh, unbelievably so she allowed me to race my motorcycle, went home with a trophy. And from then on, I was the record holder after that. So anyhow, <laughs> but no, so back to the, uh, the religious. So you went on thing. a mission. Where did you Where did you take your mission? So I went to Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, ah, Arkansas, wow. a little bit of Texas, and for two years. And that's where I gained a little bit of leadership and right. uh, as also a leader that. in the in a church and in a yeah. mission. And so um, I came back, and I was successful in school.
0: Wow. So so did you. Um... Tell us, tell us about those two years. I mean, you know, obviously I'm familiar with uh, the Mormon faith and, and the missions. I've got several friends who have gone all over the world, and uh, I guess they do quite a few missions in the U.S. as well. Uh, sure. Were you, um, you know, doing the knocking on the doors and sharing the faith? Was that, you know, kind of part of your, uh, your mission while you were down in Louisiana?
1: Yes. Yeah, it was the, yeah. uh, it's called the Gulf States Mission, right. and the mission home was in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so you have a mission president, and he actually was from your part of the world, and uh, president of a of a bug company. I think they had um, trucks that would drive around with big bugs up on the cabs, <laughs> and they were uh, um, uh, anyhow exterminator company or something. Yeah, but that was yeah, Lyman P. Pinkston, and so he was the president for, and mission presidents are called for uh, for three years, and so he was the president, and then basically you've got two hundred missionaries working two by two. Knocking on doors yeah. and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with right. people in right. that area. So it was a great opportunity to be a district leader and, and you know travel throughout that area. And everybody drove because it was a huge area. Now, in fact, my grandson, we, by the way, have 45 grandchildren. <laughs> and wow. just had our first, that's including our first great grandchild we just had. Good but anyway, my... My grandson uh, just returned from what's now called the Baton Rouge mission, and I was there for seven months in Baton Rouge, but he returned from that mission after two years just recently, six months ago. So
0: so you mentioned when you came back to school, you did better. What what did you pick up? What was it that you learned during your mission period and that you applied or were able to apply when you went back to BYU? Well, I
1: learned how to read. Yeah. Pretty simple. So was, <laughs> yeah. So you know you're you're, and that, you're sorry. You're constantly you're constantly reading the scriptures. So you've got right. you know the old and new testament, which you know I know backwards and forward. And uh, and then uh, of course the Book of Mormon, which is God's dealings with his people here in the Americas, a second witness right. to Jesus Christ. And so familiar wow. with that from six hundred BC to four twenty one AD and how that relates to the bible same kind of people from the same part of the world and so but i got very familiar with those scriptures and, and wow. it was quite interesting because i couldn't read very well at first and you're in front of people and you're reading you know prophecies of the of the of the coming of the savior to the to the world and and also visitation to here in the americas and so uh, in one instance, I had, so I had to memorize everything. So I memorized wow. 138, ah, sorry, 138 different scriptures. And so, and also passages, pages. And so when I would read to people, you know, we'd go teach people the, uh, certain discussions. And once I was caught with uh, with the scriptures upside down. <laughs> and, and I'm just well, like I'm reading out of them, and the lady said, is there, "Is there something wrong with your book? It's why is it upside down?" And I said, oh, "Well, oh, I, and I have to classic. tell a story, you know." <laughs> so and I just you know I had to learn a lot of things. In fact, I was just we're just studying the the Old Testament right now, and Joseph, and it reminded me of when a lady said, you know the the uh, the New Testament. Um, is the re- or the, the Bible is a record of the descendants of um, um, of Israel in uh, the two different books, and then the other the, the the Book of Mormon is a record of the descendants of Joseph. And the lady said, "Well, which Joseph is that?" And I said, "Oh, that's the Joseph with the coat of many feathers." <laughs>
0: that's right <laughs> the amazing instead,
1: instead of the color yeah, in. instead of, <laughs> <laughs> instead of uh, many colors i think joseph that went that. to egypt
0: not the one that lived in New york right right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> well so it sounds like you embraced the mormon religion then right, uh yes. coming back and, yeah. and have continued to uh operate them that's great it, has faith been a pretty big part of your business success
1: it has i mean you realize yeah. that it's you know it's 99 percent. Um, it's, it's 1% inspiration and it's 99% perspiration. And so, you know, I feel highly inspired in everything that I do. Yeah. So there's no, you know, that the veil is very thin and that, that God is, is in our everyday work. He knows us well. He knows what we're trying to do and he's very supportive in the things that I've invented.
0: No question. So, did you work then um, after coming back from mission? I assume that the draft uh, time was averted. You came back and finished up your engineering degree. Uh, were you fully committed to your studies? Was there jobs that you had during your college those last couple of college years?
1: Yeah, I worked. I worked in a machine shop uh, as a uh, an instructor at, at BYU. So, I worked for BYU. I also worked. I bought and sold cars very successfully. And in fact, and started a import business, uh, my friend, Ken uh, Woolley, the one that's uh, the founder of Extra Space, he right. he served a mission in England. And so he ended up um, he ended up uh, going back many times and and. Uh, um, and, and does business, of course, all over the world. In fact, he just, well, I won't get into that. But um, So we were importing cars. So we're yeah. bringing in uh, Mini Coopers. In fact, I still have a Lotus Elite, a 1963 Lotus <laughs> Elite. There's only 1,030 of them made, and they won Le Mans uh, five years in a row. And I was uh, we were able to bring that over, which I still have today. In fact, I almost gave it to Jay Leno. I was on the Jay Leno show, you know, 10 years ago, Uh, immediately, you know, when we became a success with Will It Blend, I was on Jay Leno and then the Today Show the next week and Katie Couric and Charles Osgood and Donnie Deutsch. And so it's been, you know, one show after another. But I was there with with Jay and first of all, we're talking about uh, water jet printers. I said, yeah, BYU, we built one that had, it was was 24,000 uh, Psi And he says, oh, I've got one. It's 42,000 PSIG. <laughs> so, so Jay and I hit it off really well. He knew my Lotus well, and I almost gave it to him. And I, My wife said, no, you need to restore it. So in nine months, we restored <laughs> the Lotus Elite. It's one of the nicest ones on the planet, and I've raced it, and so that's a whole nother. But so Good yeah, five. so I so I imported cars. So you were you were doing the you're doing the exporting cars while you were going to school. Yes. So as a BYU, we're importing wow. Rollses, ro- older Rolls Royces, <laughs> and and uh, old Jags, nineteen thirty eight Jags, MGTDs, TCs, TFs, um, and so on from England, and for three years until you know the late seventies, and then uh, I mean the late sixties. And so then everybody started doing it and and that wasn't right. such a good deal. But yeah, so that's how I made a lot of money doing that. And then also, unfortunately, I married my income property too. It was only $100 a week, but I married a, a wonderful woman who uh, was a nurse. So she also uh-huh. worked and we had our first two children uh, there in Utah before 19 seven, January of 71 when I left. So yes, I, had to, I paid for my own mission. I paid for my own education at BYU. And I paid for, you know, living expenses as I went through, you know, college and so on. So that's Awesome.
0: Well, tell, tell us about your early years. So you got your degree, uh, were married, had a couple of kids, it sounded like, soon thereafter or at that same time. Yeah. What, what were some of the first jobs you had and kind of led you on your way?
1: Well, I went to, first of all, I had the, you know, with no more deferment after a, after a, a, student deferment, a ministerial deferment, and then another student deferment, it was time to join the national guard. Oh, you were still eligible for the draft. Oh, sure. And after all those deferments. Oh, wow. sure. Number 50. And so, yeah. and uh, they're calling them up like crazy. And so, uh, of course, Ken was at Stanford getting his PhD and MBA there. And so he went to a draft counselor and they said, man, this guy and told him what my circumstances were. They said this guy better better do something, or he's going to end up in Vietnam, you know, in the front lines. And so, uh, his wife, Athelia, she, so she went to uh, she looked she started looking around in the Bay Area because I, uh, you know, I, I really I didn't know where I was going. I had job opportunity in in Southern California as well as as well as uh, in in Washington State, Tri Cities okay. area, mm-hmm. but. She, uh, she, she looked at different National Guard units and found right near the San Francisco airport in San Bruno, the 2632nd transportation unit, which was, uh, she says, oh, Tom likes trucks. Let's sign them <laughs> up for that. So anyhow, she signed me up. And so, which made it a little difficult to get a job knowing that I had to go active duty at some point, un- unknown, you know, in the next year. And so anyhow, so I left. I had to be in the Bay Area. So I left BYU. With a wife and two children, a little trailer full of all of our possessions, and moved to uh, Cupertino, of all places. Oh, right. And in and, and a short order, um, bought a house for uh, $27,000, which is <laughs> fun, fun to see what that house is worth because that's where they just put the new facility, the new the Apple, Apple building. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And well, so I imagine it was
0: still pretty underdeveloped at that time, too, right? It's true. Yeah. Some so it just house, started. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that house uh, we sold uh, 3 years later for 47,000, now it's worth I think almost <laughs> 3 million. Probably. And then the other house we bought for 50,000 is now worth close to the same right near the same campus. Oh, real
0: estate, yeah. But
1: anyhow, so what I did is um I I handed the a headhunter, there's a there's new company starting out and so I I met with a headhunter and handed her my resume. And the resume, and this is to go to work for a pharmaceutical company. And so I hand her the resume and she reads through it and says, yeah, interesting. And then she gets to the bottom where it said that I was a missionary and this was mm. not a good thing, mm. nor was it a good thing that I had two children because this is going to work for the inventor of the birth control pill. Uh, and and so they're not into kids and they're not <laughs> into. And Say the no, least. And these, yeah. And these are some of the top scientists in the world. These are. Husband, wife, um, husband, wife, uh, research people, no children, and these are well, I mean wonderful people, but they just chose to you know, a career over families. and so and the and the the program then was to have no um, I mean the two two live births is all that was covered under the insurance program, and unlimited abortions. Ooh. So uh, yeah, so it was kind of tough, but I changed. I was I did go to work there. And, uh, and I was able to change those to unlimited live births and um, and limiting abortions to two. So I was part of the Corporate Communications Committee nice. when we had one. But I was the 24th employee there. Wow! And so um, it was a great, I was the first hands-on guy, the first guy to make anything. And so I made the first patch just months after I left uh, BYU. And so that's the scopolamine motion sickness patch. Okay. And so... That uh, patch, and we did all the testing on that. We set up a slalom course in the backyard of, of uh, Alza, and that's named after Alejandro Zaffaroni, um, the first two letters of his two names, a very famous uh, South American doctor uh, uh, who passed away just a couple of years ago. And that was the most active trading stock in the San Francisco Bay Area for 10 years. It was unbelievable for a company that wasn't making any profit. Uh, um, Initially, but it was really had a, a great story, and so um, the next thing that we worked on was the was taking a day and a half's worth of oral hormone in the form of a birth control pill, but putting it in the uterus as an IUD, and so the, that day and a half's worth of progesterone uh, would last for two years as an as an intrauterine device. Right. So the first our, and our first name for that was the uterine progesterone system. And uh, those guys that drive around in those brown trucks didn't like the acronym <laughs> UPS, yes, <right>. and so <laughs> so we changed the name to Progestasert. And in the late and that was in the early seventies. Uh, in the late seventies, the IU the the Copper Seven, Dalcon Shield, uh, Tatum T, all of them were taken off the market. The only one for the, really the last 40 years that's been on the market is the progesta right. Still on the market today, but now there's a marine and some others that have even longer delivery life. So there was that. And then also the ocusert, the ocular uh, system where for glaucoma patients, where we put a small amount of algenic acid into a, a elliptical shape, like a soft contact that you'd put under your lower eyelid. And instead of putting drops in your eye Every, every few hours, not being able to see for an hour and swallowing 80% of what you put in your eye, we developed this device which would release pyelocarpinogenic acid over the course of the mm-hmm. week. And so you put it in Sunday night and you get 20 micrograms per hour release uh, over the week or 40 if it's a P40 a micrograms per hour. And so it was a, a, the whole concept of the company was a control release of drug through permeable plastic membranes. Right. So right, that w- that was the beginning. Well, of how long time. how
0: long did you stay with Alsa? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. And did you have at- some management responsibility there, or were you just pretty much in the development of new products? Uh, you know, give us an overview of your responsibilities at the time of your departure.
1: Yeah, I I um, I was over engineering, uh-huh. and I had about thirty engineers and uh, technicians that worked for me, and and I was a terrible. Manager,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you knew what
1: question was coming, Tom. <laughs> so that was your
0: first management experience, and it sounds like right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Other than you know, in the in the mission field as a missionary, yeah. and so it was. Right. Yeah, it was tough. And uh, and uh, in fact, uh, my boss and we grew. You know that in that four and a half years, we grew to uh, six hundred and fifty employees, and wow. you know, and we grew to twelve buildings in the Stanford Industrial Park. So I was in the first building and anyhow, that was a growth. So I had 12 off. No, I had 14 offices, uh, you know, over that period of four and a half years. That's how the company grew. Incredible. And uh, of course, you know, later um, we sold a lot of technology to J&J and, you know, Nicoderm and some of the other things. But right. anyhow, but getting back to that. So I had these, I slowly, I had no excuse for not performing because we had a hundred million dollars of Chase Manhattan money. And I wow. could spend anything I wanted. I had, this is the you know, the early 70s. That's a yeah, lot of that's money. That's a
0: lot of money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, so, um, and so here I had, I had, I didn't have to do any. I had accountants working for me. I had all of the um, HR people, you know, hire anybody I needed. I could build. And if I'm trying to do a project fast, I would have five companies quote on the same thing. I have three companies build it. And then I trashed two of them, um, you know, or whatever. I mean, just it, it time was of the essence. I had wow. absolutely no excuse for not performing. And so, but I had a tough time. But what I, what I was going to say is my first, um, I, I got my first review and the, when they started reviewing people and you got one out of 10. And, you know, technically I'm, you know, eight to 10. And then, then uh, but management wise, I was down in the bottom of the pile and wow. I and I asked my I asked my manager, I said, this what does this mean, diplomacy? I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> and it's like I'm like one. Problem, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like one or two, you know, on diplomacy or minus two or whatever. I said, what does this mean? What does diplomacy oh, mean? I really love it. didn't.
0: I love so it.
1: anyhow, so I had to learn how to. And I had to learn. And this is where, you know, I learned from my dad because he was a wonderful dad. And he taught, I mean, he was very patient with me. He would come home from HP every day with scrap material that he bought out of the scrap pile. And I'd I'd sit in, he'd sit by me in the lathe room and with his can of beer and, and just counseling me. And, and. Uh, Tell us a
0: little more about that influence. You, you mentioned a, a little bit about your mother and uh, obviously her involvement and you know, how did your parents influence your 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 style, your you know, your approach to life?
1: Yeah, well I say would would say that my dad, because of his lack of of interest in in really supervising people, but he was just a great inventor and and very entrepreneurial and a Hewlett Packard he who is constantly in Watts Current, which was a Hewlett Packard magazine in the early days. But he, uh, he was just patient and he, he, you know, he taught me about metalworking and learned how to weld. And as I was in San Francisco, even as a soldering, I learned how to solder before I was five and I was welding when I was six or seven. And so, um, wow. and so he just taught me, you know, sorry, he just, he taught me how things worked. Yeah, you know how, yeah. how things are made. He he was an amateur photographer, so I he actually has I have color uh, movies of the World's Fair in 1938. So he was into into all ridiculous. sorts of photography. So I learned that and just a lot of other skills. My mother on the, how many years? How many years was he at HP? He was there um, from from uh, 51 until he passed away in 64. So oh, wow. yeah, That's he was 56 when he passed away, and so my parents, oh, so yeah. yeah, and but my mother, uh, on the other hand, she was she was also entrepreneurial, and she she was an inventor. She actually had a patent oh. and so on. But she, um, so she she worked when my dad was in Tinian and uh, during World War II, and he made the still out of uh, the the stills out of airplane parts. And uh, so he provided the liquor for the, for the officers and so on on Tinian. And then he was um, uh, also made the manglers and the thing to, to press the clothes for the officers and so on. And uh, then he, you know, with, with airplane parts, and then he was actually um, uh, involved uh, with uh, uh, Enola Gay and was, was actually flying alongside that for the, uh, for the bombing over Hiroshima, famous bombing. Yeah, wow. and so uh, which which really bothered me when I went with the founder of of Costco, um, uh, Jim C- Citigal and Craig uh, Jelinek, the CEO uh, now. And as I as I go to uh, uh, that part of uh, Japan, and I yeah. think, oh no, what am I going to do? And the night before, I'm surfing the channel, and I see that that the Japanese guy is talking about what a blessing it was that we dropped the bomb over Hiroshima because, um, you know, otherwise instead of a a half a million people being killed in the war, there would have been, you know, millions of people killed. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. And so (laughs) I didn't feel so bad. My dad never talked about that, but anyhow, so that's my dad. So, but during the war, my mother was in the San Francisco shipyards. Oh, and she was supervising thirty journeyman uh, electricians, and making
0: boats, making, make, ships.
1: making battleships, and pulling wow. miles of wire. She could read blueprints, um, obviously not dyslexic, and, <laughs> <laughs> and so she was she was uh, wiring up ships. And so she, as a as a single as a as a as a one person. You know, a woman running all of those journeyman electrician, you know, uh, managing those folks. So she was a better manager, certainly, than my dad. But she uh, later, when my dad passed away and the kids are grown, then she worked at Hewlett-Packard, worked for Dave and Bill, worked putting all of the prototype circuit boards together. So she ran, she did manage all of those women that would stuff those boards and solder the boards and do all the testing of the boards. Uh, at hewlett packard in in uh in the middle sixties um, uh after my dad passed away, so yeah. that's what she did, and so she knew that's how awesome. to so I got some i did learn some things from her and <laughs> and the women loved her even though she was a real dictator as a mother <laughs> and uh, I mean she did wear the pants in the family. My dad was laid back and and just a great guy, but yeah. and so was she as a more of a leadership, and so she was involved with you know, the uh, different things going on in the community. And she was a real activist when it came to that. So she was truly a rosy riveter and a uh, great woman. But that, so that helped, you know, I me manage a little Fantastic. bit.
0: And, and was Harvard House Food and Grains next in your career? Is that where you went after all? So tell us a little bit about your transition to that position.
1: Yeah. What I did is during, while I was still at Alza, I started to People were storing grains, uh, wheat, in, uh, in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and uh, they're, putting, they're putting wheat in plastic buckets. And with my understanding of the permeation of drug through plastic membranes, I knew that was not a good thing because moisture and gases go right through that, that polyethylene, and, right. and they right. get the moisture into the grains, and then weevil comes alive, and it's not a good way. And so people, that's how people were storing. So I came up with some new storage techniques and I ordered uh, 48,000 pounds of wheat uh, from, um, from Colorado. And mm. so that was coming in. I developed a, uh, a wheat packing device that would package that 48,000 pounds of wheat in about six hours. So I developed that machine in my garage. And then in, uh, in uh, uh, Santa Clara, I leased a, a small building on Walsh Avenue. And then while I was still at, at Alza... And so I brought that in on a, on a Saturday and we were able to, uh, so started that company, uh, First, called the uh, Survival Life, and then Harvest House Food and Supply, and so we're packaging, you know, <laughs> tens of thousands of pounds of grain, um, you know. And so I was doing that on the side. But what okay. I'd done before I even started that company is I ran the wheat through my wife's vacuum cleaner, the Kirby vacuum cleaner, <laughs> blew it out, and I thought, oh, this is not good because I'm trying to maintain the integrity of the grains and not break it up. But I ran it through this vacuum cleaner and blew it out into a pillowcase put a sample in a baby food bottle and then every time it went through the vacuum cleaner it got finer and finer uh-huh. dirtier but finer so i had a dozen baby food bottles lined up and eventually you had fine flour out of a vacuum cleaner wow. so i thought wow if instead of having a 150 dollar motor you had a 10 dollar vacuum cleaner motor and you could do that on one pass with a vacuum cleaner motor then you'd really have something so that's what that's when i developed the the, uh, the kitchen mill. And that yeah. was, in fact, the patent attorney, Tom Ciotti, who's very famous now, um, he was the first patent attorney at Alza. And I got so tired of these patents coming across my desk to review and sign. And but I was, and get my $2. Most companies pay you a dollar when you have a patent. <laughs> they were so good that Alza paid $2. <laughs> but anyhow, he did my first patent on the side for a thousand dollars for that mill, which stood up in federal court and won a major, you know, case in the in uh-huh. federal court, because people are always copying my ideas. So, so, what
0: year? What year are we now? What what year was Harvest Grain?
1: Okay, that you... would that would have been. Um, let's see, that would have been um, seventy, about seventy-five, something like okay. that. And that's, 70's. and that's still going today. Harvest House Food yeah. and Supply is still on the internet. And so Ed and Helen Nina bought the company from me. And uh, meanwhile, my heart was not in it because right. my heart was into making grain mills. So yeah. he was wondering, he had ordered a bunch of, of stuff. He was a real estate broker um, um, in in the Bay Area. And he offered to, uh, he ordered some stuff and I didn't deliver it. And so hmm. he finally came in to pick it up himself. And I said, well, why don't you just buy the whole company? And so, so he bought the company (laughs) and and then he didn't pay me. And then later he did, (laughs) but anyhow, so that was the first company. And then I started
0: by that time.
1: Yeah. And so then, uh, yeah. So I'm working on the mill from, from about, yeah. From, from 75 until, until 79, when we introduced the mill and we sold 43,000 mills in two years. So very successful I went to the the number one company, Magic Mill. It was making mills at the time. And I showed them, hey, you're going to be out of business. And uh, so they jumped on the bandwagon and they uh, put their name, Magic Mill 2, on my first mill for two years. And during the first year of that two-year contract, when the patent issued, they immediately got an engineer to circumvent the patent. And so when my my, um, contract ran out in two years... Then they already they didn't quite have a mill ready, and then they sued me because the patent was in my name personally, not in the Kitchenetics name is uh-huh. the first company. So Kitchenetics made the mill with a Magic Mill 2 name on it. And so they sued me for $800,000 in an attempt to put me out Ooh. of business and to get the get their hands on the patent. And so then they realized the patent wasn't in, in the company's name. It was yeah. still in my name, yeah. and so that caused them some <laughs> grief. So we finally won that lawsuit. And then we went from you know about eighty employees, and and we had at that time another company which nobody in the world could make the rotor and stator for that mill. So I literally, to what you're saying earlier, I machined the molds to wow. make the, the wax patterns, and we put in our own foundry in in um, Campbell, California, on Dell Avenue. So, which is not a good place to put a foundry in, in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Where you're melting steel at at uh, three thousand degrees, and you're using all sorts of chemicals and oh. stuff. But anyhow, uh, California is not the best place to do business. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, no, no, not, not too many factories left in Silicon Valley, no. although you know, there were plenty of them way back when. Yeah, so. In fact, one of our clients just closed a plant not too long ago. But I want to go back to something just for a moment, Tom, if I will. You, we had mentioned about you know your struggles uh, with regards to the folks that you managed and, and learning what diplomacy meant. Yes. <laughs> How did you kind of develop that further? Because for obvious reasons, you needed help. Uh, when you were at Harvest Food and, and Harvest House. And obviously, as you you went to forming Blend Tech, which we'll get into in a minute, um, you had to lead people. So what happened? What, what changed? You know, we talked about how the mission trip really helped you to learn how to read and that helped you go back to school. What was it that changed and what did you work on and how did you kind of develop those people management, those leadership skills?
1: Yeah, I think I learned a lot at ALSA and just even... You know, as I was a missionary, just meeting different people, you know, from all different walks of life and all different, yeah. and so I, you know, I met some of the most fascinating people. You know, from from a, a guy who owned a chain of mortuaries in the South, you know, and and just you know his management techniques and and what how he how he would trusted people and how he he hired just the very best people. And you just want to surround yourself with people that have these talents because yeah. you've got to have marketing, you've got to have and sales, and you have to understand finance and all these things that I had no interest in. Um, <laughs> right. You know, so you just have to really have a good feel for people and and their spirits and what their desires were and and what their 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 qualities were and and. And, you know, very.
0: And then did you just let them go? I mean, how did you um, lead? How did you manage? Or did you just surround yourself with good people with strong character and integrity and honesty and trustworthiness and expect them to the jobs they were hired
1: for? Exactly. So well put. You just have yeah. to have people that you can trust and just yeah. you can let go because you have no idea in most cases what they're doing. And so I, you know, <laughs> and, I, and with all of that. Or not care. Yeah, yeah, and so people, and and so and now you'd think I would learn my lesson back then because more recently we've had some problems with some people I hired that weren't so good, and that's what's caused us some lot a lot of grief more recently. I finally hired, uh, and we can talk about that later, but finally hired uh, two CEOs within a short period of time. The first one lasted eight months. The the second one ended up bringing his own um, his own controller in. And uh, and that was a disaster because they conspired together to embezzle from us. And oh, just two goodness. weeks ago, one got indicted on eleven counts of of, of um, you know felony. And so mm. um, yeah, and so that's the kind of thing that you know I, I you think I would have learned my lesson, but those are people that were not honest and did take me down the and then along with the next group that that one of them went, went for the one that just got you know got arrested. And mm-hmm. uh, we'll be going to jail. And so you know those and he went to work for someone else and and when they mm-hmm. I said when I found out they hired him, I said, you can't you know why would you do that? And I said, well, we'll watch him carefully. And he lasted <laughs> 18 months there. And then when they fired him, and of course they kept the computers which were ours, which had all, all of their their financial, all of their their payroll and stuff on the computers. He said, no, those are my computers. <laughs> and I already oh told him, no that they stole the when, when we when I fired him, they spent $17,000 at Apple buying, com- buying computers on our credit cards after I oh. fired them. Well, they did the same thing there, but they, they, he wrote a check for, for $400,000 and deposited in the bank, and then another bank, and then he went in four days later. This is after this next company fired him, and then they got him at Zions Bank on camera where they said, I'm sorry, um, Sean Reyes, the attorney general, has seized your, this account. And so they have a picture of him in the bank Uh, with the look on his face. But anyhow, uh, those are the kind of people that you hire that you, you know, that's where I, you know, occasionally you're going to make a mistake. I've hired some bad people in the thousands of people that have worked for me and up to 500 more recently. um, You know, we just now know, especially with lean manufacturing and and not only manufacturing, but in in we do lean uh, principles even in our marketing and our accounting and everything else. So that's something that's been very helpful to having the best people and knowing when they kind of weed themselves out, when they can't live up to the, you know, to the standards of, of lean. Right. And right. so Man, that's, that's been helpful. Very helpful. You, now you now see the disadvantage of in of, of being ADHD. You remember where we started <laughs> and where we are now?
0: And now we're finally at Plentech. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 50 minutes later. So tell us, you know. The foundations obviously came out of Magic Mill, but uh where are we? Nineteen seventy eight?
1: Nineteen eighty? When when did you found the company? Okay. Then in in uh yeah, so really Kitchenetics was founded in in, in seven, about 77, something like that. And, uh, and that's when, and you know, I started out just hiring some, some good people. And then, and then, um, it's just been tough, you know, finding, uh, the right kind of people and doing the right thing. And you have your ups and downs that almost killed us being sued by magic mill because they took off and they were making their own mill. And so I had to go back in 19, um, 1981, when they started making their own mill. and uh, I had to, we're still in California and and they had a lot of operations in Utah. So what I did is I mustered up enough money to, to while well, we moved, uh, you know, to a more favorable place to manufacture. And that's Utah, and there's no better place that I've seen in the world because you have the smartest people here in Utah you know, the most college graduates and the most, even though they're not going to be with you forever because they're very right. entrepreneurial, but while they're with you, um, boy, do you get the production and, the and, the and the brains out of them. So, um, they're very, uh, it was just a great place to move. So, um, we moved here a little over 30 years ago and then, um, I put in stores, set up manufacturing, just bootstrapping, starting all over again. And, and, uh, And then um, I put in seven stores within a half a mile of Magic Mill's most successful Mm -hmm. stores. And at that time, I'm importing a German mixer from Dachau. And so the Germans make the best appliances, made the best appliances at the time, Bosch being one of them, and and they make bottom-drive mixers. So I imported one, modified it um, in Campbell, and actually started this in, in California, and then... And then moved to uh, moved it to Utah, where we developed our own mixer. But anyhow, at, at the same time I'm developing a mixer, we're do, having these retail stores. Six months after we moved to Utah and set up these stores, uh, Magic Mill filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of Magic Mill. And so we won that battle. And we had a store in Las Vegas, and we had multiple stores in Utah, because this is the bread-baking capital of the world. Right. More, it, right. And so... Then we jumped into, of course, uh, bad timing because that's when everybody decides that carbs are not good and people stop making wet. <laughs>
0: that's right, <my> but, <laughs> but
1: fortunately, and this is from an experience I had in 1968 at a, a wedding present I did get from Ken Woolley, which was a rival blender, which didn't last very long. I mean, oh. it kept breaking. And so I thought someday I'm going to make a blender that won't break. And so here we are. Um, in in Utah, developing a mixer with a blender that won't break, and so ah. and, and we can make we're a kitchen aid, We'll make three pounds of bread dough. You know, we're making twelve pounds of bread dough in the in a smaller bowl. So and sensing the gluten development in the dough and shutting it off when the the dough is perfectly kneaded, and so that's an, another invention that that uh, nobody else had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, but what happened with this mixer, people stopped making bread. And then, but they started using our mixer, the blender on the mixer commercially. Right. Nobody had a real true commercial blender. So, and this is when the smoothie shops are popping up. And so I said, okay, you want to make a blender that won't break? And so that led to the development <laughs> of uh, the best blenders in the world. And then immediately, of course, we're in Starbucks. We're in 64 countries with in Starbucks. We're also, uh, in Jamba juice and Zuka juice yeah. and all the major. Um, and we're in all the scoop shops, Baskin Robbins, Haagen Dazs, Ben and Jerry's, anybody that's in the ice cream business, they better be using our blender at that time or they can't compete. All right. And so then you have constantly, you've got Vitamix, our main competitor, and they're coming along and they don't really have a decent machine, but the first thing they did, they couldn't compete. And so 12 years ago, when I invented the, the, uh, the Memorial Day weekend in uh, three uh, two days, on, on a Friday afternoon and a Saturday and a Monday, I developed the wild side jar. Huh. That's the one you'll see in Jamba today. And I just took a bunch of our four-sided jar, two-quart jars, cut them all up, glued them together in a shop, and when the engineers came in on Tuesday – And and made smoothies in that thing, you know. Nothing to this day has outperformed it. So Vitamix could not compete because they got a plunger that they're cramming stuff down in a crisscross blade with, and we have a single blade with winglets, and so and a dull blade and a thick blade that doesn't break. It's taken me 17 years to (laughs) develop a a blade that won't break, and now you've got a competitor, Vitamix who just recalled 170,000 blenders because, according to the U.S. Consumer Protection Agency, the uh, blaze can break off, cause serious laceration, and even Mm -hmm. death. Because people, and this goes back to, in your part of the world, in Santa Ana, where a gal gulped her cappuccino blast in a a Baskin-Robbins store and swallowed the end of a blade and had to have it surgically removed. Now, that happened to be a Hamilton Beach blade, and, of course, she sued... Um, she sued Baskin-Robbins. They sued Hamilton Beach and other things had broken off and in, in other spindle blenders. And uh, anyhow, so that's so I, I was bound. So, so your business,
0: your business was was significantly large commercially before you got into the consumer side. It's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You know where were you, and you know relative dollar value, if you don't mind
1: sharing, on the commercial side before you got into will it blend and and the consumer market. Well, what was fun is you've got you know we're already starting with Howard Schultz, you know, and uh, and we're in we're in Barnes and Noble bookstores because uh, we made the first quiet blender with a sound enclosure, and the only one. Ah. See when you have when you have enough horsepower to dra- drive a single blade that's not a crisscross blade that's thick and dull, it takes more horsepower, but it does the job faster. And so we're using a motor, a vacuum cleaner motor, and that's, uh, that's made by Amatech. And so that motor is three peak horsepower. And so then mm. we also had some that were 3.8 peak horsepower. Now now you've got all these juice uh, shops that are starting up. So Jamba in San Luis Obispo, and they were, they were uh, um, anyhow, not called Jamba then, they were, they were Juice Club when it started. And so they called us down there and said, hey, they're looking at all these different blenders. And they had everybody's blenders that they got from wherever they could find them. And then they invited us down. We go in and demonstrate our blender. And and after they said, we got to have this. And they took all the other blenders in San Luis Obispo. They threw them, in the, they threw them <laughs> up against a, a brick wall and they smashed them all. And they said, okay, we're this is after we kind of had an agreement. And they said, look. Um, you know, Howard Schultz sits on our board and every time they put in a Starbucks, they're going to put in a Jamba. And I thought, I don't think that's going to happen. But, <laughs> but anyhow, and I looked at all their cards are like t- 12 employees and they're all vice presidents. So they really <laughs> on a real growth. So what they did is they said, look, we like exclusivity on your blender. And I said, hmm. well, you know, that's kind of a problem because we have other people in smoothie shops and so on and all over the world. And so, but um, you can't have exclusivity, um, but we'd be glad to sell you blenders. And by the way, we don't have any money. And so I said, don't worry, I'll give you a half a dozen blenders in every store and 40 jars, and they only had 11 stores at the time, and just give me a nickel every time you do a blend. Yeah. So, so after they got up to 50 million blends a year, which was $1.5 million for us, uh, we had low, well, we had lowered our, from five cents, lowered it to three cents. So we're making about 1.5 million a year on Jamba. But then Vitamix went to them and said, look, um, we will, uh, we'll do do all your blends for two cents a cycle Mm -hmm. and save you, you know, half a million dollars a year. And they were trying to go public and they didn't have any money and all this other stuff. And so they, um, So they said, okay, and they were just rolling out our wild side jar. So they said, okay, if you'll give us a jar, that will perform as well as a wild side jar. So we can just do one blend. We don't have to do two or three blends and cavitate and all that other stuff. And they said, no problem. Uh, We'll give you a jar that's comparable to the wild side jar. So they copied that jar Mm. to every detail. Everything's the same. A nesting jar, I have two patents with 51 claims. And and they they violated every part of every and so we thought okay but that got them into Jamba and then Jamba had the ethics to not use that wild side jar yeah. and so they uh, they were wonderful people and they're still you know I still know some of them today that that didn't copy us but they were stuck with this horrible jar. That I see, I have a patent on nesting jars. So they didn't, nobody had a jar that would nest in another jar. And if you have 40 jars in a smoothie shop or a coffee shop that don't nest, where are you going to put them? And so they had to modify a modified jar that they already had that was horrible with a crisscross blade. So they have, had to change all our recipes. They have to do two or three blends to, to affect the good blend. And so they were stuck. Jamba was stuck in a six-year contract, which they thought was a three-year contract. Mm. But anyhow, so they ended up, you know, then they, and they had 326 stores when they were doing 50 million smoothies at a time, I'm, I mean, a year, and uh, they had that many 360 stores doing 50 million, and then they grew to 860 stores, and, uh, and then, uh, but they were stuck in that contract with that bad blender, and so finally we we sued them for using our jar. and And the federal court judge and jury found them guilty of willful patent infringement, and awarded us twenty four point one million dollars. Wow. And so, and uh, you know, it took a while; it took two and a half years to get the money. It took us, you know, we're involved in the litigation for six wow. and a half years. That and, but that's what you know. But they were doing seven hundred million, or yeah, seven hundred million in sales, according to to um, Vitamix. That was yeah. their sales. And we're down at the, you know, 137 odd million. In some million. But anyhow, so we... So tell, tell us about, back to the question, how did you kind of
0: transition from a commercial provider to the Starbucks and the Jamba Juices of the world to getting into the consumer market?
1: Well, because we had the, the you know, consumers were starting to use our blenders. I mean, they could see the, the value of them. We did have yeah. one designed that was actually designed in... Uh, when I was still, um, still in California. And in fact, that's our most popular one today. And uh, that's the total Blender. <laughs> it's, thir- it's 30 years old and, uh, and using that vacuum cleaner motor. And so we started uh, um, just very poor in a- in advertising, um, but started moving it out. And then it was really uh, later on when we, uh, when people, well, people discovered this is the most powerful blender right. available and right. word of mouth, you know, got it out there. And, but what really did it is when I hired a marketing guy, George Wright, and we had no marketing. I mean, we're really just, you know, mainly commercial, but um, right. he came along and, and he he said, what's this pile of sawdust on the floor? And and somebody says, "Oh, that's Tom just trying to break blenders and blades and and shafts and bearing, you know, whatever." And so he said, he came to me and said, "What's my budget?" And I said, "You're the budget. You're expensive." And he said, "Well, how, how about how about fifty dollars?" And I said, "Yeah, you can have fifty dollars." And so he went out and went to Costco and he bought a rotisserie chicken and he bought some marbles and ray candles and and uh, other things like that and and. Uh, um, and Blend was and, and, born. And he came back and he, <laughs> and he said, hey, blend these things. I'm going to video, you know, we're going to oh video you blending them. So then he came to me five days later and he said, man, we hit a home run. We have we have six million views on YouTube. Oh, and my I, goodness. That's said,
0: great.
1: <laughs> and I said, who I yeah, had no idea right. who <laughs> YouTube was. I mean, that was the early days, you know. I love and it. So I love next, How many
0: years ago was that, Tom? When, when did uh, that campaign would get born for 50
1: bucks that was 11 years ago 11 years
0: ago so within a week you know
1: we get a call from jay leno's group and they said hey can you come out here and we'll fly (laughs) you out bring bring the family and you know so we did that and then the next week the this is right the the day before thanksgiving i'm out on the out out and the plaza with uh with the today show blending uh uh, six different things, and and so anyhow, that was kind of the beginning, and so um, now now I've had the five hundred million views on the internet. And ah. We have almost nine hundred thousand uh, subscribers, and so Fabulous. you know we're just having a great time. But our sales went up a thousand percent right out of the shoe. Oh, I can imagine. So people I can probably- imagine
0: that. You you probably had some manufacturing challenges, right? Uh, when they got that demand,
1: we really did, and we're so yeah. we're so inclined. I mean, we we're making things in China, you know, uh, blender blades in China and and other parts, and the motors are made in Mexico because they don't make them in the U.S. anymore. amatech the best manufacturer, and so. We, um, uh, we really, yeah, we struggled, but we continue to do more and more things in house where they really the only American made kitchen countertop appliance awesome. when you look at what yeah. we do. And so now we just brought in another $10 million worth of automation so we can take copper out of the largest man-made hole on the planet, which happens to be here in Utah or out of Arizona or other places here, but good old American soil and, um, uh, and 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 make ingots of, of copper out of that, ship it to the Midwest, and draw that copper into wire. And so wow. we uh, we wind our own motors. We we can wind a motor. We have two winders. We wind in eight seconds each. So in in that short period of time, I mean, every eight seconds we can produce a finished motor of our design, um, made you know right here in America. And then we can drop that into a Uh, build a blender, same thing. Everything's set on an eight-second timeline. So we can build a blender every eight seconds. And so we do all of our own uh, metal parts. So we have 14 Sagami uh, electric uh, uh, CNC machines. We have 15 injection molding machines up to 500 tons where we can mold all of our own plastic parts. So when you see the enclosures that are in Jamba Juice and other places around the world. Uh, In 92 countries, you'll see our sound enclosures molded right here and in our own factory. We make 17 of our own circuit boards uh, with everything we possibly can use, you know, from the U.S. And so that's what we do right here in in Orem, Utah.
0: Well, you know, we're about five minutes past the hour. I do have a couple of wrap-up questions I'd like to ask of you, if you have the time for us. Can we go for a few more minutes? Oh yeah, no limit. Fantastic. So, you know, you've obviously had to build quite an organization. Uh, how many people are in Blendtec
1: today? In well, we've been as we've we've been as high as 500 I and mentioning. now now we're in the mid 300s, but right. we get as we get, you know, we train people who really would be rep, would just be doing routine um uh, maneuvers. I mean, just assembly routine things. And we've now they're programming CNC machines and robots just to put our motors together. We have 16 robots and there's robots on all of our, on our other machines. So we've been able to train these people and that really stand out through this lean manufacturing process. And we train them to do things that aren't so routine. And so we're down to, you know, the mid three hundreds and, uh, and and producing, uh, t- you know, those containers sitting. Even I mean, every day, yeah. you know, we're we're shipping, you know, to ninety two countries around the world.
0: Fabulous.
1: What what do you look for when you're making bets on the people that you hire? Um, just you know, going back to people that have integrity and and they're just really hard workers and and people that just really stand out. We have a great HR department, and uh, sometimes I I supersede um, they uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring people to them that, uh, that I've been very successful with. I just feel good about people. Run. You know, we yeah. have one young man more recently that was, that was homeless in the streets of salt Lake. And, uh, wow. and I watched him, you know, that from when he was 16 years old and then, um, his mother actually cut my, cuts my hair ah. and, uh, uh, <laughs> and she is, uh, Anyhow, she told me she followed up, you know, tough love. She her son couldn't talk to her. Finally, she said, I think he's ready to work. You know, will you put him, can you put him to work? And I and and with that story and the feeling I had, I said, Yes. So I go in and we had just hired a, <laughs> we had just hired a new HR person a week before. Uh. And so I go to him and I said, I want you to hire this guy to work in production. And, and he said, "Okay." And so, but we but we have but we need to put him through the, you know, through the background check, uh, yeah. the background check first, <laughs> and that'll take a couple of days and the drug tests and all this other stuff. And so I said, "No, just hire him." So, <laughs> so, he, so he hires him, and he hires Ben. Drink water, and and then. Um, the next day, next couple of days, or next day actually, he got the the background report. He said, "We got to get rid of oh, this guy." Goodness. You know, here's a, he's got a three page rap sheet. Ugh. You know, all these felonies and and car theft Ugh. and all this other stuff. He said, "We can't have anybody working in this company like this." And I said, "Trust me." <laughs> he said, "Okay." <laughs> well, that was six years ago. Nah. And now and he right out of the shoot he really stood out this kid is brilliant and so he said do you have a manual on the CNC Sugami machines I said no but at, you know asked the engineers well he got impatient he got online <laughs> he read the manuals he learned how to program the the Sugami machines and now he runs the he runs one shift wow. and does all the programming and and uh, and he's he's happily married and And he's just a wonderful human being, and and that really and that started and it actually started in in uh, Campbell, California, on Walsh Avenue in our foundry, and or not on Walsh, but on Dell Avenue, and that's where I hired a guy. Um, His mother was driving him. Here's a guy who kidnapped his his uh, um, he kidnapped his partner's uh, son and took him to the zoo, and he got arrested. (laughs) And put in jail because his his partner, his ex partner, owed him ten thousand dollars, and so he takes his he takes his son to the zoo. and very good friends with the kid, and took him to the zoo and ended up getting in jail for uh, get put in in prison for ten years. Well, he got he got out of jail, and his mother, he was on the uh, LDS has a great way of. a uh, great way of taking care of their people as far as employment. And so we looked on the LDS uh, or he was signed up on the, on the, on the church employment thing. And his mother happened to have joined the, the LDS church when he was a, uh, when he was in prison. So she looks on there and finds, finds this job in the, in the, uh, in our foundry. And so she drives him to work and this guy starts wow. working for us. He later became our manager of the foundry and when we sold the foundry to a company to sound precision in washington years later um he they and they and the a local foundry guy who was a good friend of mine said of all your employees who should i hire and he was the only one that he that this other wow. guy Fabulous. hired so anyhow so he's 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 one of the first he's the first of five felons that i've hired and they've all turned out to be very successful including yeah. tyr- Cheerful Charlie, who was in your part of the world, and did a—he was a—he was at a state planner, and the IRS went after him as an example, and he lost his million-dollar oh. home in California. Back then, he moved to Utah twenty-seven years ago and ran our ran our machine shop. And once again, I thought, "What this guy's?" And anyhow, Cheerful Charlie, <laughs> who places a, a squeeze box and and still entertains our. Uh, for years, even after he left our company, he continued to come in and play the accordion for our Christmas parties. (laughs) Oh, that's
0: fantastic. Well, Tom, last question, and then we're going to let you go. What career and life advice do you give, particularly to new (laughs) college grads or, you know, folks that are starting out in their career and, you know, maybe aspire to, uh, like you, found companies and run them or maybe get to the uh, the corner office themselves?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, just go get a job, you know, something that uh, and, and learn how to work and work hard and find something you really love to do. Find a little niche, you know, in, in uh, um, something that you really enjoy. And, you know, if you find something that you really love, um, you never You know, you, as they say, you never work a day in your life, a day in your life. (laughs) Really. And that's what I've been able to do. And I've been able to include my, my children. I almost sold the company um, a couple of years ago and we had this bad thing happen uh, right before that. And uh, you know, for 220 million, and that's without the buildings, which appraised for another 25 million. And so, Um, and I decided, you know, no, I'm not going to do this because my, my kids are involved. Um, Mm. and, uh, you know, and just there's so many good people and it just will be a different, um, it'll be a different world here at blend tech. So, but I would say to these young people, you know, just, you know, learn a skill and learn, yeah. Um, just work really hard and, and, and save money. Don't just, don't go blow your money away. And, uh, and then surround yourself, you know, with the very best people, and and lead out and take charge. And then, when you are successful, share the wealth. You know, we've we've been very helpful in our community with the Museum of Natural Curiosity, with more Good Foundation. That's the one David Nealman actually founded, and and sitting on that board with me um, is the founder of WordPerfect, um, mm-hmm. and and um, uh, and so. The, these are just the best people. And so that's the, you know, find good friends now, you know, surround yourself in school yeah. and just find people that you can, I mean, look at these guys that I'm still involved with. You know, I, I gave, um, um, I gave Ken Woolley $17 million more recently for, for his $100,000 investment in Tech. And, uh, then I turned around, and, and uh, after things kind of, we had some trouble, and I called him up and said, Ken, I need uh, to borrow $3 million. <laughs> and, and Ken said, you should have called me yesterday. I just bought four 747s oh. <laughs> for, for his airlines. <laughs> and so so but, but he was able to go out and borrow $3 million for me and, and guarantee the loan for another $3 million. Mm-hmm. And then uh, so... You know, True it's friend. just those are friends, and I taught him how to drive in the seventh grade around my racetrack in yeah. Maryland.
0: Right, yeah. right. Well, Tom Dixon, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. You've been extremely generous. We've got lots of good stories here. You've had a a tremendous impact on just so many people, too, you know, and that's so uh, enlightening uh, to be able to see and recognize and how you've changed people's lives. And uh, I want to thank you for your service as well as obviously uh, the success that you've had. And it's just been a pleasure hearing your story. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Thank you. All the best.